0: The Ringer's music critic, Rob Harvilla, curates and explores 60 iconic songs from the 90s that define the decade. Rob is joined by a variety of guests to break it all down as they turn back the clock. Check out 60 songs that explain the 90s exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages,
1: I need sports staff to, to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and
0: welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at theRinger.com and joining me on the other line, he's relinquished his title as the world's greatest archer. It's Andy
2: Greenwald! <laughs> it is a coveted title in 2021. Um,
0: Fun fact, hello Monday, America, pop culture, universe, listening to uh, these two old friends talk about TV and other things. I just wanted to let you know that, you know, Andy and I, we met 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we actually have recently recorded a Rewatchables that is currently in in the queue uh, that sort of celebrates a movie from that year. But little known fact is that Mm -hmm. um, because we both grew up in Philadelphia, I feel like our paths crossed a couple of times over the course of our childhood. For and sure. one of those things was that I went to day camp at Andy's mm-hmm. school where oh, yeah. I uh, I wouldn't call myself proficient at archery. And we're obviously yeah. going to be talking about the Hawkeye trailer today. We're also going to be talking about um Why the Last Man. And then Andy has an interview with Lindsey Buckingham from Fleetwood Mac. No big deal. Incredible.
2: But did you go to that day camp? I sure did. I bet you studied the bow. You fletched some arrows with the great <laughs> Steve Ruzanski, who was my I'm fifth sure grade teacher. Who in the summertime had a had a hobby I that william camp. told the game
0: i can't really remember but there was was there like basically like a, a essentially a civil war at that camp every summer where it would be like the camp would get divided up into two teams
2: yeah those who would, had bows and arrows and those who didn't <laughs> no, it was you know a what I mean? very very short <laughs> conflict <laughs> i think no, I there was like a mean.
0: there was like a basically like a capture the flag tournament
2: that, yeah, that sounds familiar, and that, that sounds
0: would fun. be that was probably like honestly the most fun I've ever had in my life.
2: Can I say now? And I, this is all you know. I know people think the first five minutes of our podcast are tightly scripted, but I'm here to tell you, not the case. Looking back on looking back on my life, <laughs> <how> we've reached <laughs> it's it's uh, you know it's zenith, which is talking to Lindsay Buckingham for a second time. Um, I'd be hard pressed to think of something with a greater disparity between what i wanted and what was reality than my ability to uh use a bow and arrow. Yeah. yeah. In that, you know, again, i don't think this is spoiling anything, but a lot of the, the 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 literature that i consumed as a younger fellow, like under the age of 10 was sort of, you know, like fantasy stuff or like elves and robin hood and king arthur and anything that involved bows so where you were really I, early
0: in the shared ip shared universe world where king arthur and robin hood yeah. we were like rolling out and solving crimes together
2: chris i don't know <laughs> if you've read th white's once and future king recently no. but uh rereading it now reading it to my older daughter incredible book robin hood's in it king arthur and robin hood hang the f out they did and not I did occupy not remember the this. same
0: timeline though
2: historically uh, no, speaking Well, okay, all right. I love, I love this. You're that guy on the internet for English fiction. Remember when
0: Bill was like, "Did did Game of is Game of Thrones set in like the
2: 1600s?" I didn't know if we were allowed to ever talk about that.
0: Yeah, did he say that on our pod?
2: He did, and we let it go. Ah. We let it go. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm worried now, but he did. He did ask that. Um, Um, Yeah. So wait, King Arthur and Robin Hood hang out, and I guess all I want to say is. It just seemed like, and I know now maybe it's not cool, but it seemed like shooting bows and arrows, and look, it'll have a second coming thanks to this Hawkeye series, which we're going to talk about. It just seemed like so cool. And I was like, I bet I'll be good at that because I'm not good at soccer or anything else. So maybe this will be what I'm good at. And then that day, back behind the track at my school where you were attending camp, where where Steve Rzanski just like got up from a lawn chair. I was like, okay, do this. And I was like, you won't even believe what's going to happen. Just the music. Of the of of the feathers whistling through the air, that didn't happen. It's hard. You have to have great great strength in your upper and focus, um, which is I don't think body. something
0: that most young boys have. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> concentration, for instance. Yeah. Uh, Andy, let's talk a little bit about Hawkeye. So we got the trailer today, as yeah. I think this has now become conventional wisdom over the course of the day. What I thought was an original thought when I first watched it at nine a.m. has since. Good for you. Yeah. I think a lot of people feel this way, but. It's a throwback both to, I think, early Fav's era Marvel. Early okay. early John Favreau, like kind of looks good, lots of jokes, kind of like ripped from the nineties action movies of our childhood vibes of it. Has a little bit of a Shane Black feel, the Christmas setting in New York City. Yep. Obviously, this is starring Jeremy Renner and Haley Steinfeld about and it's about the sort of passing of the, the bow, if you will, between Hawkeye to to the to Haley's character. And um, yeah, I mean, I've kind of learned to both listen to Marvel when they tell me what a show is going to be about. So this definitely seems on the lighter end of things. But uh, I actually thought that that was what Falcon and Winter Soldier was going to be. And that obviously wound up dealing and grappling with some some larger issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, no no suggestion whatsoever in this movie, about uh, in the show, about who the big bad is going to be. Is it Mephisto? We don't know. I'm just always looking for that that big red devil <laughs> right around the corner.
2: <laughs> Jeez, Louise, Andy, what uh-huh. did you make
0: of the uh, the trailer?
2: Well, I think that we should first of all, it looks fun. It looks it looks promising, um,
0: and is based on one of your favorite comics.
2: Sort of. That's yeah. sort of what I wanted to get to. I, I I don't know why I what what did what did known uh, Archer Michelle Obama say once about uh, when people. Show you who they are. Believe yeah. them. Like, yeah, yeah. I don't know why I some I I treat every new opportunity to engage with a Marvel property with like this weirdly naive mix of like hope and optimism, but also reality denying. Where I'm like, great, they're gonna do the Matt Fraction Hawkeye series that I always talk about. That's so good, and they they took the logo from it, and that series is about like you said, a kind of knock around passing of the torch between the two Hawkeys in the Marvel universe. Um, and then you see the trailer and you're like, oh, right, this is still Kevin Feige's MCU. Which, by the way, I do not know more than. Like, he should be calling the shots here. And so the job isn't so much to hire someone who vibes with Matt Fraction's take on the character, which really, to my eyes, sort of resurrected him as a and reinvented or, or steered into the parts of his personality that weren't always at the fore, which are that he's basically just kind of a screwed up guy who gets hurt a lot because he Mm -hmm. has no superpowers, that the job is much more complicated than that. When they hire Jonathan Iglo, who has a great CV, worked on Mad Men for many years uh, recently, I think was on um, Bridgerton, to crack this code because they already had it penciled in. Jeremy Renner's doing a Hawkeye show for Disney Plus. The job is to pull from the rich cultural swamp that has been built up around this comic book character for years, including this very popular series that I keep name-checking. But it's also to then thread the needle of where Jeremy Renner's Hawkeye has been in the MCU vis-a-vis the Avengers films and the blip and everything else, and give it the action movie ballast that all of these projects, maybe except for Loki so far, have needed in order to justify their existence. Wanda didn't
0: really have it until the very end of the series. But yeah, your point is well taken.
2: but But so all of this is a long talky way to say that when this trailer begins with Hawkeye, with his Midwestern family, I was like, ah, right. That's a decision they made. That is in no way comic book that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And they can't just blip it away because they blipped it and blipped it right back. So he can't be as he is in the comic book, just a dude working as a, a building manager, basically, is a super in Brooklyn when right. all this goes down. He's a celebrity. He has to sort of end up there, right? That said, this has all the th- hallmarks of Kevin Feige MCU projects that I will always have time for, which is the fun around the margins. And in this case, it seems to be a Hamilton-esque musical uh, inspired by the events of the Avengers movies called Rogers, which yeah. I think is going to be a runner through the series. Love it. There are absolutely visual references to the Hawkeye series that I love, including Renner with ice packs all over his face and the the the, the suited bro villains. And I believe I have it on good authority that Lucky the Pizza Dog is in the series. That's that's a beast egg for people. Is he the big plays. bad? Uh, no, the big good. Oh, good. The big good. And and Haley Steinfeld looks great as Kate Bishop, who's a fantastic character. And so that's all promising. I, I guess. My takeaway is what it was when we talked about it a few months ago, which is very here for an, for a Hawkeye TV show with this tone. It's a little concerned about the elephant in the room, which is Hawkeye himself, which is Jeremy Renner and Jeremy Renner's performance as Hawkeye up to now in the MCU, which has well, not been super fun.
0: Yeah, well, luckily we'll also have the comedy that is Mayor of Kingstown to sort of balance that out. Like this oh sort of the kind of... Uh, the, the donkey comedy. Um, there was also a Narcos, uh, Narcos Mexico season three trailer today, which was very exciting for me. That's coming in November. Um, I'll probably talk to Eric and Carlos from that show about the series. It's the end of the sort of Mexico saga. Scoot McNary obviously is um, who sort of has like a bit part in the previous season. Looks like he has a bigger part in this one. So I don't know. I mean, Narcos is almost an outlier for me where I think if this show went on for 12 years, it's like my shameless, I would just keep watching it if they just wanted to keep making more and
2: more seasons. Well, they will, right? I mean, they pivoted so smartly.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that there will be some kind of reset of it. It's too reliable. Although I mean, you know, Netflix has done crazier things in the past, right? Like I guess there there's a chance that I don't really know if the net is Netflix gonna like build out the Ozark IP. I don't know. I mean I guess Narcos has been, I think, one of their most dependable international hits. So I think that they'll probably keep going with that. But it's interesting. Net Narcos Money Heights, I think, is coming to a close, which is a show that we shamefully haven't really ever rocked with uh i watched i think the first episode a long time ago but i have friends who are just ecstatic about it so i should check it out there's a couple of others out there where i'm just like oh yeah i wonder whether or not like these will be netflix's sort of we'll we'll continue to go back for it but then on the other hand um you know something like six underground which i think they were hoping was going to start a like huge franchise for them they kind of let that go uh, they have the Gray Man. I think, is that Amazon or is that Netflix? I can't remember, but it's coming soon. But they they continue to invest in these things that have the potential to be franchises. But so far, you know.
2: I, I think the thing about Narcos is that it, it absolutely is the poster child for what a Netflix franchise means in that it's internationally just gangbusters. It mm-hmm. is so successful internationally. And it is so malleable. And it's the type of story that is popular everywhere. Um, that I would not be surprised if we saw it continue to iterate. Basically, like Mm -hmm. you could, it doesn't matter what the native language of the show is. There are narco issues all around the globe, and there's Netflix production hubs all around the globe. So I would be surprised if they haven't at least had those conversations about narco's India or narco's Australia or whatever. Um, while probably maintaining the main tree trunk of whatever, whatever (laughs) (laughs) home is where your narco's is. (laughs) You <laughs> know what i mean um it, it's just a smart it's a smart franchise for them and one that one that you continue to enjoy that i have um i've not gone on that journey with you
0: so uh let's get into a journey that we have gone on together which is the yes. first couple of episodes of why the last man hulu put up or fx on hulu and they're available on hulu the first three episodes are available as we record this i guess they must have gone up in the in the late hours of the evening last night i would imagine uh and so they're doing the boys as andy pointed out to me off off my keep they're doing the boys style release which is the first three episodes and then weekly after that this is obviously we've been chatting about this on and off for what feels like half a decade mm-hmm. uh because it's been in various stages of development eliza clark is the showrunner now it's obviously the uh the the graphic novel is it a graphic novel or a comic what's it was a
2: it was a floppy month to month comic book when I was buying it um, from Brian K Vaughn and
0: Pia Guerrero. Right? And Pia uh, Guerra, yeah. yeah. And yeah. So it's, it's finally here. I would say I've been interested to see whether or not this thing would pop because on one hand, I find that they have been in the traditional sense, promoting it. Like I saw ad ads for this on football during football mm-hmm. yesterday. Um, shout out to Joan Hurts. And so I it's like I think that they are doing a good job of getting it out there. I can't tell what the buzz is, I can't tell whether or not people are excited to watch it. You know, I don't know whether or not this is a title that has a lot of resonance for people um, because it seems like it's something that true comic fans like quite a bit, um, but is also maybe a a, a sort of time capsule piece, like something that's very much of its time. And yeah, so I wanted to go to you first here because this is obviously something I, I, I almost wonder whether or not was it strange firing this up as somebody who has a relationship yes. with the comics and then being like, wow, after all this time, here it is. There's
2: your I have been following its torture journey to the screen, to any screen, because it was in development as a feature film for quite some time as well, longer than I was reading the original comic books. And I have not gone back and read the comic books since they were new. Um, and. As we've said when we previewed the show or it's come up before, I can't lie, when we talk about it, my interest in it is as much about its torture development process because, well, there are many things in TV and movie history that have had even longer journeys. I mean, this Clint Eastwood movie that's about to come out has been in development since Clint Eastwood was the same age as the character, I think, right? (laughs) Like 35 years ago or whatever. But um, more often than not, things this tortured that aren't absolute, like there's going to be another Superman movie, right? Like no one has figured that out since Richard Donner and Christopher Reeve, but they're still going to make one because mm-hmm. it's Superman. A project like this, I don't know if it needed to exist other than people had sunk so much time and commitment and talents and hope into it that they willed it across the finish line. I have to say, after watching the first two episodes, it's hard to imagine a better intentioned or more talented and more adept adaptation of the comic book than what Eliza Clark and FX and everyone else involved have done. It also did leave me with a question of, are we sure we needed to do this? Mm-hmm. Which, is the, which is a tough question. And that is not, I'll say this again as a caveat, the casual fan who saw an ad for this during football, having never heard of it and checked it out, they're not saying, oh, maybe that they've yeah. done a good job adapting a comic book, but... Did we need this? That's not really a Joe Popcorn question, but it is a question that I was left with just because, you know, Chris, you you know how much I love going to Vegas. Like, I just I love it. I love the bright lights. I love the air. quality. I honestly
0: have been surprised by how relentlessly you've been going despite Delta.
2: I know. Well, it's because you can't keep me away from the tables, you know. Spending money to make money in a, a game. That's what I love to do. That's Archery just and blackjack.
0: Those are the two, the Ar- two hobbies. <laughs>
2: just I just I just take to it naturally. Um, but I do I have seen enough gambling movies or mm-hmm. listened to Dave Chang on Bill's podcast enough to understand that there is a thought process that goes into this, which is at a certain point, if you're losing, you might not win it back and you should walk away, right? This idea of like not throwing good money. <laughs> I'm not sure if those guys have ever done yeah, that. I'm saying like, I've heard basically talk like, about
0: do it. you do you spend to get out of the hole, essentially, or do you and, just say that's and, the hole and that that will be what it is?
2: And that's a feeling I get from this. And I when I say that, I mean no disrespect to Eliza Clark, who I, I we've never spoken to, we don't know her at all. But I think that she's done a pretty amazing job across these first two episodes of addressing what were clearly existential problems for making this a show. So. Before I get into more of the specifics, we should just give a little bit more of an overview. Um, The comic book had a very hot-button, fascinating issue at its core, which is a virus that's never really explained, like all good viruses, (laughs) including including our own, uh, wipes out essentially half the population of Earth. Not just humans, but all creatures with a Y chromosome, except for the lead character, a struggling um, escape artist magician named Yorick Brown and his monkey. Mm-hmm. ampersand they, they are males uh, uh, cis males and they survive and then the world is totally transformed and apocalyptic and a lot of wild stuff happens
0: the beginning of the series finds the world basically well after the first episode which is sort of the before times the yeah. end of the first episode the second episode and the, what i've seen of the third episode so far is is the world in chaos the world not only grappling with all the practical questions that you would have mm-hmm. about like, how do we power things and how do we pump sewage and and dead bodies out of the New York City subways? I know that's a graphic description, but it's what they're dealing with. Everything like that. It's also got, you know, burgeoning conspiracies about what, what happened and why it happened and who was spared. So definitely like unintentionally, probably a hot button and prescient yeah. show and a prescient story. Yeah.
2: And, um, you know, the uh, FX and the production company Color Force, which is Brad Simpson and Nia Jacobson. We talked about one of their shows last week, Impeachment. Once it came, came to them and came to TV, they continued to push it in development, including up to and including filming an entire pilot episode.
0: With Barry Keough as the, as as York, right?
2: Yes. Written and developed by Michael Green and directed by Melina Matsukas, who, who people should know and adore from her brilliant work on Insecure and, and other shows, filming a full pilot and scrapping it mm-hmm. and starting over with eliza clark and with ben schnetzer replacing uh, barry keogh and some other actors sliding in and out um that's just not done and it's rarely done by fx which even though it is owned by disney has never been a profligate spender whether by choice or by necessity they they don't do hbo money like that i mean a- hbo
0: even HBO, so, I mean, it's like, where's my corrections? Try that one again, man.
2: Yeah, but HBO made an entire <laughs> Game of Thrones pilot and they were like, nope, Yeah, we'll just do another one completely. Not this one again. We're just going to turn the page. I mean, that's a, that's tough for any company to swallow, but FX generally hasn't done that. So they're very committed to this and trusted Eliza Clark, not just with finding a way to get this on the screen, but finding a way to get it on the screen in a way that feels essential in 2021, where the issues of how we talk about gender and um sexism and society have changed so radically mm-hmm. that this idea baked into Brian Vaughn's comic book, which is that let's make a story about all the men going away and then make a story about the one man left. Right. I mean, that's 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 dated. That's not anyone's idea of how to go into a story like this these days. And so there's so many things that hobbled it that I'm impressed that it manages to trot it all, up to and including the fact that As you alluded to, it's so premisey. The decision to start the show a few hours before everything ends Mm -hmm. means that once again, like, you know, watching the world end, slash New York die off is like watching Batman's parents get killed. You know, you you never, it's never as good as the first time. And
0: I'm sure there are. good reasons for that and I, I you know you and i have alluded to this a couple of times over the last few weeks for a variety of different shows and and mm-hmm. s- some some shows are going just doing the most you know like gestural framing devices where it's like wo there's a body like like white lotus yes there are some and i think that these are different things but i i would say it's basically when do shows decide to tell you either uh, how much you need to know about what the world was like before the inciting event of the series, yep. or how much do you need to know about the inciting event that will take place later in the series? And I personally probably am getting. I think it's just because of the compression of a bunch of yep. series doing it at once that I would much rather just watch res- Reservation Dogs, where it's just like here's a linear story about people going through something in their lives. Yep. You know, I don't. I don't know why that is. I think part of it is that like I feel some of them have been. Stapled on to give the shows a little bit of like tension where they're ordinarily or wouldn't be one inherent any any inherent. And sometimes right. I'm just like, God, like who cares? Like just just start this the second all the the Y chromosome die. You know, like it's yep. it's actually like I don't really need to know the background. And I think and I think in in, in good writing can communicate what the former president was like without having well, to spend forty minutes with him.
2: The other thing that. The other very unique um, challenge that faced Why the Last Man was if you're going to show the before times and you're going to have to briefly introduce and then dispatch some Y chromosome having characters. You're going to have to do a very interesting job of casting the five best actors in Canada who aren't too good to take this part. Sure. <laughs> you know? And I don't mean any disrespect to the men in the show, but like that's part of the calculus and that's how you get a president that looks like the president on like syndicated Fox shows from the 90s. Like right. that's just how you end up with that. You cannot, you're not going to get um, Nick Nolte or Morgan Freeman. <laughs> like it's yeah. just not going to happen for this. Yeah. So I think it's worth, but I do think it was worth considering and I'm glad they released more than one episode. Not just because as you said, the boys sort of established this this for like, the comic book stuff that that seems like a good runway to get people acclimated or to like sate fans who could give it a good or, you know, give it a pass um, based on their prior knowledge of the material. Um, it's mainly because the first episode is the first episode. How are we going to end the world? The second episode has even more pressure on it than second episodes usually do because it's, it is, well, what's the show going to be? Cause it's not going to do that again. I have to be upfront and say that I don't know whether it is the last two years of life. My age, this premiering around the twentieth anniversary of nine eleven, I personally had no appetite for the first episode of the show it 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 it, ups, it upset me but not in a way that I relished or felt was artistically um informative or um sustaining you mm-hmm. know it it just felt
0: i i would cru- say it's it, worth it felt, noting it
2: felt, it felt cruel
0: and it's me. worth noting I think there's been a couple of examples of I don't think your appetite for whether it's epidemic or catastrophic. Never high. Yeah, it's not, but but especially now, I don't think you've been like, boy, I can't wait to get into like a zombie apocalypse or whatever, you know,
2: like. It's just like, here we go again with shots that reminded me of the Leftovers pilot, you know, mm -hmm. um, or any other apocalyptic type thing. But also, despite everyone's good intentions, and we should shout out the director, Louise Friedberg. Like, I just think everyone involved did a very good job. Like, yeah, I, was I considering wanted to say
0: because I wanted to say there's there's something you're talking about that I kind of want to unpack. I know that we, we have your your interview, but I, I do want to unpack this idea of did we need this? Uh, I, but I first want to say sure. on a scene to scene level. I, I, I enjoyed this. Like, I think yep. that uh, Diane Lane's very good. I I really like Ashley Romans who plays I, a, a secret agent out, yeah. who's doing, like, a real cool, like, lone wolf espionage show inside of this show.
2: Ashley Romans is doing something that I wish more characters were given the opportunity to or more actors were capable of, which is, every time she's on the screen, giving us both versions of the show. She is giving us the thriller action show that it needs to be, and she's giving us the very complicated emotional show that it ought to be. And Mm -hmm. she's able to do that with her character in scene to scene in a way that I'm really impressed by.
0: But I think that I kind of wind up back where you are. Here's the question I want to ask. So when we were, uh, this is going to sound like a very stupid uh, tie in, but when you and I were younger music journalists, Uh, And we were all essentially like our only hopes of getting paid for writing were to write in magazines. And when you would pitch editors at magazines, one of the things that you would hear often is why this band? Why now? Why would this band be like the only band that we write about on this one half page of spin or whatever? It was often when you were trying to write about like up and coming bands and you were trying to make the case for this, you know, punk band or whatever. And I always find that really frustrating because I was just like, I, I guess I can't answer that question beyond I like them and I think they're interesting. But I, al- I always sort of failed at like solving that equation of what are the exact cultural yep. movements underneath this band's tide that are pushing them to the shore of relevance so that this audience that we have needs to know about it exactly. Exactly now, they're not big enough yet, so we can't we can't do it here. They're too big, so we can't do it here. I always had a hard time with that. I think for a long time, up until like three or four years ago, when we really broke the the dam with like the amount of stuff that's being made for television, you could make the argument that television had those kinds of very stringent uh, checks and balances, where it was just like, do we need another one of these? Do we need this? Is this a little too close to that? You know, do people want another? teen stranded on an island, but it might be lost or whatever it is, you know, like these kinds of things where now, algorithmically speaking, you can come up with a series of descriptions that you like about TV. I like this age group. I like this kind of setup. I like this tone. I like this kind of level of involvement with like the long term plotting and whether or not it's going to be something that has a lot of mythology to it or it's something I can take and leave week to week. And you can find it. You can find it on one of these streaming services. And it's it's interesting to get something like Why the Last Man, which is obviously uh, very well done in some ways, but still be having these questions or these conversations about I, why do we need this? Or I, I mean,
2: maybe I'll you're say, right. maybe
0: it comes down to COVID and and nine eleven. No, and,
2: I, I'll say that as um, someone you know actively developing and writing and pitching things in Hollywood, like that's a con- that's still asked. It's still asked and. When I was show running, that was something that I asked the room a lot, which is, does this scene pass the the Passover test? Why is this night different than all other nights? Why is this the choice? Because you can set your stakes of your fence down anywhere. So why here? What makes it special? Because you're not writing a book or a blog post. You're spending millions of dollars to put it on, make it a picture. So let's choose wisely. And I think ultimately that's why I ultimately that's why I I feel that why stumbles a little bit because it still has these guardrails of the comic book even though Eliza Clark and her writers have blown past a lot of them in very smart and interesting and provocative ways. I mean, a, some of these characters are not from the comic book. The the notion of gender fluidity or that there could be pre, you know male presenting char- characters who do not have Y chromosomes. I mean, all of this is is now baked into what she and her team wanted to 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 cover and they bring I think a again, like a good faith exploration of that to the screen and what we've seen so far. But there are limits, you know, and I think that the, in terms of the story structure still limits the focus on what the show can be about versus what it might want to be about or what it might feel more interesting to be about. And again, from two episodes, to me, the most interesting things about it would be how could you rebuild a society Without people with Y chromosome, um, there you know. First of all, there are no podcasts anymore, so that's a plus. But well, I
0: mean, there would be Call caller daddy, you know.
2: Okay, great. So that so that's good. But um, no, there would be great podcasts. I didn't, yes, I but, know. I, but I think podcasts of literally us doing this. Yes. I think it's fine. You know what? To, to continue with the with the Hebrew Dainu, that's always we've they, had a, we've there had would always run.
0: be the archives. You know,
2: but. <laughs> Except the ESPN ones. But so a story about about the role of, of gender in society or about um, just Ashley Roman's character, Agent 355, like an anonymous person in a larger machine dealing with crisis like that's an interesting show. There are a lot of interesting shows here, but it's noisy to have it also be about this magician guy who's not anyone's idea of, I mean, he's not a super compelling protagonist to me yet. And maybe that's partly by design and his sister who he has a complicated relationship with, who also kills a guy early on, but also their mom's the president now. Like this is, feels very, I'm not saying it rings false because it's TV, TV? but it's TV. it it, it does feel it strains the bounds of credulity in terms of like what to to keep that afloat while also hinting at what it would be like if every living person on earth was in incomprehensible mourning and shock and loss and leftovers tried to deal with that and wrestled with it and rolled around with it and ended up in a really kind of transcendent place and it, it did so because it didn't have also have to do what the show has to do as a big-budget comic book genre show on a network that is, you know, finding its place in this new ecosystem.
0: Right. Well, we'll we'll return to this. I think at, c- at certain points throughout the the first season. Why don't we set up your Lindsey Buckingham interview a little bit? Lindsey's definitely in the cut right now. He's he's talking to folks.
2: I I do think there's something. I think that Lindsay's character arc right now is more in line with the original Why the Last Man comic, just in terms of focus on on him and his point of view. Um, So to set this up, Lindsay Buckingham, one of my all-time favorite songwriters, performers, a musical hero of mine, uh, love Fleetwood Mac, love Stevie, love the whole thing, but I've always been particularly uh, drawn to Lindsay because of his just it's just it's just kind of bizarre and idiosyncratic that he has been the key cog in one of the most successful rock and roll projects in the history of the genre, but keeps relentlessly trying to grab the wheel and steer it into crazy town and make things weirder. Starting with Tusk and then his solo records and then um, Tango in the Night and et cetera, et cetera, and. I find it really inspiring and compelling that he, you know, he's now 72 years old and this Friday will be releasing a solo album, self-titled solo album that is as urgent and awesome as anything he's ever done. He's at this stage like like the great Dutch masters where he's like, he's still painting the same still life. Sure. And by painting, I mean still going down to his studio and like barking like a dog and hitting Kleenex boxes and playing and trying to find this hidden connection between doo-wop, folk and new wave. But he's still finding something. He's still getting there. So I had a great conversation with him in person in 2014 for the Grantland podcast. And that was, you know, that was a bucket list kind of thing. And that was the day after a Fleetwood Mac show at Madison Square Garden where they were on this triumphant tour because Christine McVeigh had returned to the band and it seemed like, you know, everything, anything was possible. And now Lindsay. And this is the subject of our talk. Since we spoke, he had been fired from Fleetwood Mac, had emergency triple bypass surgery that damaged his vocal cords, leaving his singing voice uh, in in doubt. But now it's he, he's fine now. And I really was excited to talk to him about the journey of the last few years and what keeps him ticking. And also just I'm a huge fan of his solo work. So I, I kept trying to steer it to that. It was the goal of the conversation was not to relitigate rumors and right. get the soap opera stuff. What well, what's interesting about him what I found interesting about this conversation over Zoom a week or two ago was his not just willingness but desire to sort of get into it. Just get, get into it and just do some drive-bys of Stevie and everybody and I didn't do too many follow-ups about those cuz I kind of wanted to keep it you know, you know, Chris for me it's all about the music.
0: Yeah, no, but, you're not but the, sensationalist clickbait. Monster, but the reason
2: yeah. why I I'm having this long intro was because then around the time he was talking to me, he was also talking to, you know, the other the, he talked to the three bigs. Right. He talked to me, the New York Times and the L.A. Times. And um, in those interviews. He really went after it. Right. About Stevie. And so I, I didn't have. And, the, and then the L.A. Times got like a quote from Stevie about it and stoked the fires and got a quote from Irving Azoff, the manager that he fired once the band fired him. Um, I, so I didn't, if I had had those interviews in my As mind, context, when I yeah. talked to him, I might've pushed a little more on some of these issues, but I I didn't, but I still think he's just a fascinating and vital singer, songwriter, performer, and just person. And it's just wild that look, you just name-checked pitching spin editors in the 90s, and we still reflected on our archery struggles in the 80s. So maybe it's not weird to be like, this guy is still just shoveling emotional snow from almost 50 <laughs> years ago. Maybe that's normal, but it is it is striking. And I guess I'll just say, I loved getting the chance to talk to him, and I really love his new album, which is out Friday. It's just it's just great.
0: What a run of of diving back into music for you.
2: Yeah, I mean... This isn't like what we're doing now. It's just that no, all the just... artists I like or who I can DM put records out in a six week period. So you're done now. I feel like I'm done. Is it who else is it? I think I'm done. Yeah. Is that cool? No. Sure. I
0: mean, but you know that the 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 chum is in the water now. All the publicists are gonna be like, Andy, would you like to talk to, you know, John Bon Jovi about his his new album?
2: Now I'm a Sambora head. Okay.
0: Uh, We'll be back on Thursday. We're going to talk about Feel Good on Netflix and a couple of other things. We look forward to having you then. Until then, enjoy Andy's interview with Lindsey Buckingham. We are produced, as always, by Kaya McMullen. Thanks for listening to The Watch. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages,
2: can't believe I'm saying these words again. I am so honored to be joined once again in a podcast by one of my musical heroes, the great Lindsay Buckingham. Thank you for joining oh, me.
1: Thank you for having me, as always.
2: Um, I should say at the beginning, when we sat down last it was October of 2014. And mm-hmm. I wanted to go back and research that podcast. Unfortunately, it seems to have been scrubbed from the Internet. And in my mind, it was just an hour of me asking you about the drum sounds on Tusk and you (laughs) indulging me. And so I I just want to let you know in advance, if that was the case, um, we will steer clear of that topic this time.
1: Oh, that's quite all right. You know, that's many moons ago. And I, you know, I would be a, a much more kind of, you know, prescient person, if I were even to remember that kind of detail of an interview from then you know so. okay,
2: good, yes, that's true. I think it probably loomed larger in my mind than yours yes, over the intervening yes. years um but i I do want to, of course talk about your beautiful new uh self titled album which is out September seventeenth, and I have a number of questions about that, but okay. going back to that first time we were able to speak, it did strike me that a lot has changed since then um uh just a few things yeah, <laughs> just a few things in uh your life as, and just in general for all of us who live in the world. Um, uh, yeah. And as I was sort of going over my questions, both about that time and about the new record, I realized that time itself was kind of the theme of my questions. And it caused me to go back in your catalog and just realize how many songs you've written about the passage of time Uh yes. going back over, o- over decades.
1: That's, that's true. And, you know, I think, the idea of of being aware that time is passing and, and that it is precious and and that, you know, to some degree, the uh, parade of events are only minimally within your control, you know, obviously, to some degree, based on your behavior and the choices you make. But that I, I think that that sense of that has gotten more and more visceral, you know, the older I've gotten, too.
2: Yeah, it's incredible. You you mentioned, I mean, Time Precious Time was a song on your record Gift of Screws from a few years right. ago. Um Not Too Late was obviously explicitly dealing with a lot of um your feelings about the passage of time, but even just randomly on my on my run the other day, I was listening to Countdown from your your great mm-hmm. 1992 solo record and the lyric Time slips away jumps out and that's 30 years ago already. That's um, right. It's a little haunting. So let's go back to this moment when we sat down. So we sat down in October of of 2014, and it was the morning after another sold-out show with Fleetwood Mac at Mm -hmm. Madison Square Garden. Your performance was amazing. The group was great. Christine was back in the band, and it felt uh, really celebratory. And one of the themes of our conversation at the time, I believe, was that it seemed to feel like, at least in your mind, that you had maybe crack the code to the career you had been chasing for a long time where you could release your solo records and explore your own muse and then find the time when necessary to do tours with quote unquote, the big band. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it was all humming. Is that an accurate read on how you were feeling at that moment?
1: I I think so. And I I think that had probably been the case for a while, you know, um, certainly there had been several occasions where the intention to to do solo work had been superseded by Fleetwood Mac in one form or another. You know, most of the material, for example, that ended up on the Say You Will album in, in 2003 mm-hmm. was stuff that I'd done with with Mick and and the producer Rob Cavallo and meant to be a follow-up to Out of the Cradle, which you referred to a minute ago. and And, of course, in the interim the band had asked me to rejoin and to, and so we had, you know, it it had taken a very long time for me to get to the point after touring the Say You Will album where I could say, well, look, I'd like to take two years to make a couple of solo albums. And at that point, you know, my life was so different anyway because I had gotten married and I had three children. And so I had made a huge turn, you know, turned such a corner in my life and had a whole new landscape to write about. And I think at that point, the whole rhythm of, of working on solo work and how you sort of balance that out with the larger uh, machine of Fleetwood Mac really, really did sort of set itself up at that point. You know,
2: When you became a father and family life came into the picture to the degree that it did, did your working relationship with your music and songs change as well? Because one constant, and I believe we've spoken about this before, is that there always seemed to be that call. You put together a collection of solo songs that you're excited about and then Mick calls or Warner Brothers calls <laughs> and says, you got anything for us? You know, and you've been very generous in sort of subsuming your own career and giving these songs mm-hmm. over and sharing them. And, I, and it always, you know, from a complete outsider perspective, it felt very generous, but also from a sense that, you know, maybe you had more in the vault. Like there, there, there wasn't a finite number, amount of time you had to work on your material so that there would always be more.
1: Well, I I think if you've set yourself up to be, you know, in a position of of continuing to aspire to be an artist and not a piece of product. And and by doing so, if you are pursuing your inner visions and your inner desires and your inner beliefs and loves then I think the creativity follows in a, in a much easier way than it might if you were to be uh, consumed by all of the external expectations that, that surround you once you've had really significant commercial success, as we had had. And you see so many artists who begin to perhaps lose the sense of who they are and, and begin to sort of try to pursue... The, that external definition of themselves and right to repeat formulas, which is a that's a corporate thing, you know. To you know, if something works, run it into the ground. And obviously, as as far back as Tusk, I drew a line in the sand and said, I'm not going to be one of those people. So I think it always was the case that I was so grounded in a creative process, and and part of that is also that I, when I work on solo stuff, I'm basically playing it all myself, and so unlike you know, working with the band, which is probably more like movie making, it's a bit more like painting. And, and so that's, that's kept me grounded and, and kept me able to keep coming up with more material and, and having the faith that if I am in a position to give over a group of songs to the band, which, as I say, and you mentioned, I've done numerous times, and, and that's appropriate, if you're going to be a band member in good standing, you, you've got to think about that uh most of the time before your own you know uh instincts or or desires and so it's made it a little bit easier to kind of walk the line the tightrope between the big and the small machine for sure you know in
2: 2015 2016 in the years after when we spoke was was the plan to potentially make another Fleetwood Mac record because i know right before we spoke there was an ep that was released that had i think one of to my mind a, a, as good a song as any you've written for the band and sad angel and then mm-hmm. after that tour, uh, rather than a new band album, you and Christine made a really terrific record in 2017. Was there any conversation during those years that this was all meant to be part of the larger uh, group?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, even before Christine, you know, asked to rejoin the band and was welcomed back with open arms, you know, we uh, uh, Mick and John and I had gone in the studio uh, with Mitchell Froom, who co-produced uh, some tracks of mine. And, you know, the three that you hear on that EP are from those sessions. And, and quite a few more as well that we did. And they were all very good. And I think at that time, and again, this is even before Christine uh, was back in the band, there was this desire from the other three members to do a new Fleetwood Mac album. It just seemed like the right time. And we could not get Stevie engaged in that idea back in 2012, 2013, preceding the tour, the last tour we did as a four piece. And then when Christine rejoined the band, we thought, well, maybe now that Christine's back, that will change the landscape for Stevie. And she will again be, engaged in in the idea of making a new album and so we went back in the studio with Christine because she had had some very rough ideas for songs which I'd worked on in my studio and it brought into focus and I had given Christine some uh, rough ideas that I had you know tracks and melodies without lyrics and she had finished those so that was a something that was very exciting and we went in and and cut uh basically, songs that were either written by Christine or written by Christine and myself all again with the intention of moving the idea of a new Fleetwood back forward and again, Stevie would not um participate in that and um i don't know why necessarily if if she just i I suspect perhaps she didn't really have any new material to uh, to uh contribute and so she just felt that it wasn't in her interest personally even though obviously it would have been in the interest of the man uh, and so that album uh, sort of by default got made into uh, the duet album that that became the, the Buckingham McVie uh, album and that was a, it was a great album we had a, a ball making it and it was you know uh, sort of a Part of the whole welcoming back ritual that uh, that we were able to share with Christine and also, you know, going out on tour with her with just the two of us was was a great experience for both of us and was certainly eye opening for her to see. How things worked more in in a solo context, you know, without the politics of Fleetwood Mac or the dysfunction, if you want to call it that.
2: Sure. Well, there's also a, such a wonderful lightness about the album. You know, it it, yes. it it is a delightful record, and there's a feeling of celebration in it. And um, yeah, I mean, one one could, if, if I had paragraphs to expound on it, I would say maybe it's because it's lacking the the chain in all senses that that can make <laughs> the other the other work feel a little bit heavier. And I yes. I, I I wonder then. I do want to get the timeline right because, um, from what I understand from other interviews you've done, this solo record, the self-titled solo record, was what you moved into next. And is that correct? That this was, in many ways, this was already in process or even close to being finished before yeah. the time your time with the band came to an end.
1: That's true. Um, in between working with Christine and Mick and John in the studio on new material. I was working at home. Uh, And again, there was, there were just a lot of song ideas floating around and, and I found the time to do that. So, you know, off and on the work on, on this new album was being done concurrently with uh, the work that I was doing with Christine. And, um, and then of course, after the uh, the Fleetwood Mac tour ended in In 2015, I had some time again to finish that, basically, with nothing going on but me, you know, working on on this new album, and then, you know, at that point, Christine and I did put it out as as a duet album, and we did tour it. And my idea was to do two back-to-back, small-scale projects. One of them was the Buckingham McVie album, and one of them would have been this new album. And uh, at that time, there were plans being penciled out for a new Fleetwood Mac tour uh, in 2018, and I had asked the band if I could have another three months from when the They were initially talking about beginning a tour so that I could indeed put the album out and do just some American dates and some press and some television and have these two small scale things back to back before going out with the mac again and that was not something it actually was something that that everyone was okay with except for one again and uh so. You know, uh, that idea was thwarted. And then I even had a, a crazier idea, which was to put the album out while Fleetwood Mac was on the road because Fleetwood Mac only does three shows a week because of Stevie's voice. And I thought, well, I could certainly contemplate doing an extra two shows a week. And, you know, while we're in one city, maybe on the day off, you, you, you do a theater as opposed to an arena. And, and they sort of got these parallel things going. And um, we had that all routed and everything. And we were tr- still trying to work out some of the details when all the, st- all the other stuff came down with Fleetwood Mac, you know.
2: And when it came down, how, how were you informed of the decision?
1: Well, you know, we had done this event in New York City, Music Cares, which honors yeah. a, a different artist every year. And obviously, because of the the disagreement about putting out my album and the disappointment that I felt and, and perhaps, you know, arguably the lack of generosity in not allowing me those extra three months, which wouldn't have made a hell of a lot of difference to anyone. Um, And certainly everyone has has asked for time for themselves at various times. You know, I I think because there was tension going into Music Cares, I I don't know um, exactly what happened when we were there. Uh, I... Did what I do, you know, I was discerning about things. There were a couple of things that I wasn't happy about that I voiced, you know, that were going on behind the scenes. Uh, Nothing major. I, I had my wife and two of my children there with me. We flew back to L.A. and I thought, wow, that was that really went well. And then, of course, literally two days later, my manager at the time, Irving Azoff, calls me up and says, well, Stevie doesn't want to ever be on stage with you again, and I'm like, what? You know, what is this, what What is she talking about? And she had somehow come up with a, a set of reasons why she was taking that position, none of which really had much weight in my mind, and certainly any issues that she might have had with anything that went down at Music Cares, I think were preceded by a mindset that, that she already had, you know, and um, I'm not sure what was in her mind, but, you know, the things that she was taking issue with were so small in compa- and the irony of it in comparison with the, the huge number of, of, things that we were able to get through in the 43 years that we were together, you know, in, in order to, you know, fulfill our destiny. I mean, we often had to rise above profound personal difficulties and profound personal differences. Um, and that that's really been our legacy in a, in a great sense is that, you know, we are a somewhat dysfunctional family who, who rose to the greater challenge and so you know the irony of stevie uh giving the band this ultimatum that either i had to go or she was gonna go was just be kind of beyond ironic in my mind you know
2: the thing that and and i believe we spoke about this before but i think one of the things that always boggles my mind about rock and roll in particular is that um i mean all there's a personal element to all business decisions but rock and roll is so unique because You know, bands often form at a very young age for personal reasons, and then business comes later. And yet, all of those personal things are baked in from from day one. And I I, I, this might be kind of a heady question, but I'm just wondering if when you and I'm sure you've you know you've had time to think about this in the three years since. Think about how those same personal things sank this opportunity, or or you know some an aspect of this relationship. How, How do you feel about that internally when you think about it?
1: How do I feel about?
2: How do you feel about the same personal things that have been, you know, a, a part of your emotional life for forty plus years, uh, still playing such an outsized hand in, you know, at least to your point, could have been such a relatively straightforward, right, career well,
1: opportunity? I mean, uh, look, I mean, I whatever issues Stevie and I may have had back in the day. You know, as you know, as the residue from being a couple. Uh and, and as residue from never having really the the freedom or the opportunity to to get closure, you know, because uh we had to see each other every day and, and for myself as producer, I had to, you know, sort of compartmentalize all of that pain and and discomfort that I might've been feeling in order to make, again, to fulfill the destiny, to make the the bigger decisions about what was good for that big picture and in particular for Stevie. And so, you know, that was something that I always felt I followed through on fairly well and that we all did really. But, you know, at the same time in The late 90s, my life changed completely because I I met my wife and I had children. And at that point, all of that compartmentalization or whatever might have been left over as residue became something I was aware of, but it was it was gone. It was I was over it. It was academic. And I'm not sure. That, you know, if you look at Stevie's situation, that it was really the same for her. I don't really know. You know, we don't talk about stuff like that. But it's, it, you know, the fact that she would act the way she acted, to me, spoke of her own unhappiness. And, and in some ways, maybe I should have taken it as a compliment, you know, that she still felt on an emotional level about me in a way that 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 forced her to act so aggressively you know
2: right and that song i was mentioning earlier sad angel um there's a lyric about come to fight the war and i guess it's sort of a realization that it was still a hot war it was no it wasn't a cold war in a way that perhaps you. that's right
1: and that song was written about stevie you know right
2: so a few months later um you had, uh, open heart surgery just a few months after this event. Is that, is that,
1: well, the timeline, it correct? was a little bit, a little bit later because, uh, you know, initially after, uh, separating from Fleetwood Mac, I wanted to, I didn't want to put my album out right away. I wanted to, uh, uh, put out a, uh, an anthology, a best of album of my own solo work, which I had never done. And that was, great fun and was quite cathartic because you know i think again academically i sort of knew that the body of work the solo work had been good and that i was proud of it but i hadn't gone back and really taken it in you know fully and and broadly in in a very very long time and so it was it was a bit cathartic to sort of curate the material for that album and, and in doing so go through every single album i'd done and listen to it several times start to finish and and it gave me a much more visceral sense of the fact that i had done some work that i was truly proud of so that happened and we toured that and and that was over at the end of uh 2018 right and then um it was in the very beginning of 2019 that that uh, I had the bypass surgery and I had just gone in for an elective procedure and so luckily I was in a sort of a quasi medical environment anyway and I had to be you know put under for that and as I was coming out of the anesthesia I I felt that my chest was hurting and I it just something was wrong and so, you know, in fairly short order, because I was in this environment already, it was decided that that they should take me to the hospital. And um, I guess I was having a heart attack, a small heart attack, apparently, but still, um, they. Uh, the next thing I remember was waking up and my wife saying, "Well, you just had a bypass." <laughs> so, uh, in, in a way, I, I think of it as a gift because it, it happened at a time. When the the support system couldn't have been better, and the the decision making couldn't have been quicker, and the the tools at hand in order to deal with it couldn't have been nearer, you know, really. So, um, and you know, that I think the bypass has taken care of uh, something that that would have been perhaps a ticking time bomb otherwise, and has you know, sort of opened up the the sense of possibility for the future in a very positive
2: way. I'm so happy to hear that. And and I, I the question I want to ask, I, I want to uh, preface by saying this feels to me like a very, very much a question that a fan of you and Fleetwood Mac would ask, where often the overarching storyline or almost the soap operatics can take uh, precedence over the truth. So I want to give you the chance to, to push back against it. But okay. looking at the timeline of this, I wondered specifically about what you just said, which is that this incident happened when you were in a position to be well cared for and had the structure to take care of it right away. Is there an alternate timeline where you are playing the third night in Indianapolis or Melbourne, Australia with Fleetwood Mac and you have a similar issue? Um, Has that crossed your mind? Is there a superstitious element to that? I mean,
1: that's that's the obvious alternative is that you're in a situation that becomes that much more life threatening because of of, you or, you know. Even worse I'm I'm taking a 4 mile hike by myself out on a trail somewhere and you know there's nobody around uh I mean any number of other scenarios could have uh, uh could have been uh what happened but you know it, it just seemed to be again a very supportive environment for for that to be taken care of expeditiously you know
2: were there moments in your recovery where you felt that the effects of the surgery would imperil uh, your music making?
1: Well, not really. I mean, the, the recovery is is for, from something like that because it's so invasive. You know, uh, it is is not short. You know, just getting up on your feet and starting to walk again. I mean, it's just a crazy timeline that you go through getting back to normal or something like normal. The one thing that that did happen. Uh, which was very troublesome and worrisome for a while was that you know I guess during uh, the beginning of the the operation, they had uh, jammed a breathing tube down my throat, which had temporarily damaged my vocal cords, so when I came out of surgery and you know a couple of days ago in my I was kind of talking like this, and um you know there was some question as to whether i would have my voice anymore um and we i first uh, went to see a doctor in town here in los angeles and eventually she referred me to uh uh the the top guy in boston who deals with any any singer who's had a problem with his his voice goes to this guy And he looked at me and said, look, this is just going to get better on its own. I can't tell you it's going to get all the way better, but there's nothing we can do to make it better. There's there's no procedure or anything. It's just going to take time. And so there was a period of a few months, at least, um, where. uh, There was a question. Whether my instrument, if you know, one of my instruments was going to was going to be there for me in the future. And that was certainly, again, troubling, but not something I could control. So therefore, perhaps not something to be overly concerned about. I just had to sort of instill myself with a sense of faith that it was going to work itself out. And indeed, it has.
2: It's I'm so glad to hear that and to hear you say it in your voice. Um, yeah. And it leads me up to the the more present day, which is some questions specifically about the album, which I've found it very challenging to listen to uh, without thinking that it was post these last few years of experience, you know, in terms of the lyrics, in terms of what it grapples with and what some of the subjects are. And even to what you just said about your other instrument being imperiled, um, Mm -hmm. one of my favorite tracks on the album is this beautiful song at the end, Santa Rosa, and there's a moment when you just take over the melody from your guitar with your voice. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it it fully is your instrument there. Uh, it, again, if I didn't know now what you had told me, that a lot of this work was done prior to uh, the health scare, I would think that this was sort of a moment of you saying, look what I can still do.
1: Well, it's funny because I, th- I think you're absolutely right that many of the lyrics uh, of this album, uh, obviously I was dealing with things having to do with relationship, but, you know, celebrating the challenges and sometimes lamenting the disappointments as, as you do when you write songs, but all in the bigger picture of of the life you're living and, and, and the fact that that time is going by. And, And I think oddly that there is a resonance to the album that, that maybe was more subconscious when I, when I put it together and it all seems a bit more, applicable to what, what has gone on the last few years. And I think it it kind of piques people's interest a little more oddly enough, you know,
2: there's no question. It's it's oddly prescient at times. And there's a a brilliant song on the record, one of the singles on the wrong side, which I just think, you know, put that on, you may need to redo the best of and put it, put it to the (laughs) top of there um, that has the lyric about living life and overload and how uh, it's the way it's always been. And I think that for people who are casual fans of your work with the band, Life and overload has oh well, it's excess, you know, the rock star lifestyle, but mm-hmm. um in the context of 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 your career and your work i I heard it as more to do with the kind of the hunger and drive and the engine that still seems to be propelling you forward to be pushing yourself artistically and making new work uh, to the degree that you do,
1: well, I think it's both. Um, certainly, it is the, the life of excess that that we had to navigate and, and ultimately survive, if you will, for uh, several decades. But yes, I, I think the the other side of that is, and, and perhaps originally, the drive to create and the drive to express oneself, uh, which is a different kind of overload, was was very tied into to the life of big with back and perhaps even the life of having broken up with Stevie and wanting to find my own voice mm. in a situation where perhaps there was really no one else looking out for me to, to remember or find out or discover anything about myself, you know, other than again, the external definitions and so um, yes the, the overloads may have started as, as a part of a dysfunction almost but i you know it it became more and more of a discipline and ironically more and more of a grounding and centering force as time went by even though that overload has certainly always driven me to be creative you know the, I guess the difference is I'm doing it hopefully for the right reasons. It's interesting.
2: It's interesting to hear you, to, to, to hear you say that about um, being unseen or unheard in, in the relationship both to Stevie and to the band. Um, You know, I I mentioned earlier that the great song of yours, not too late, which actually has you singing about feeling unseen and unheard, which is very vulnerable for a singer songwriter of your stature to be addressing. And I guess the question I had was wondering if you, felt like there was an origin to the voice in your head that pushed you forward or kept you moving um through these creative situations and entanglements um or do you point to the the schism that kind of happened when you were developing a solo voice and then it kind of became subsumed or or i I may have lost you in the question, but I guess the question is, is this something that you feel has been in your head for as long as you remember hearing it, or did it emerge more in the sort of the the fog of the seventies?
1: No, I I think it's always, it's just been the musical vision that I've always had. And you could take that back to the Buckingham Knicks album. I mean, Mm -hmm. my musical stamp is all over that thing. And certainly if you look at the very first Fleetwood Mac album we did, I mean, all of my songs and all of Stevie's songs were already completely worked out and demoed by me on my Ampex 4 track. And they were the product of a a musical vision. And so it it made that album quite easy to do because, you know, two thirds of it was already pretty much blocked out and that continues. I think that the difference is at some point, you know, there was probably the, the, the potential for us to start to paint ourselves into a corner creatively after rumors. Mm -hmm. And so that, my creative vision, which didn't wasn't about fulfilling somebody else's vision. It wasn't about if something works, run it into the ground. It wasn't about what fans or, or uh, writers or the record label was saying about us or what they thought we were. It was about what was in my head. It was about what I felt. It was about what I saw musically. And at that time, you know... I drew a line in the sand and and the Tusk album was made in order to avoid becoming a caricature of oneself. And so, you know, I think that voice has always driven me. And and then once, you know, once the politics said, well, we're not going to do another Tusk approach again. And then I, that was when I realized I had to do solo work in order to really explore the more esoteric left side of my palette. And um, or you know my the visions, the risks you want to take the 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 places that are outside of your comfort zone, the the surprises, the discoveries you're going to have to continue to make if you want to call yourself an artist, and that that's been the continuum through my whole career.
2: Well, I think that's the thrilling thing to listen to because you can hear it in the 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 rhythms of the songs the the biggest songs that you wrote for you know for rumors but then if you listen to tusk and you listen to something like blue light on your new record Mm um you know it's like an it's like an old master continuing to paint the same landscape (laughs) and finding new textures you know new new levels of it there's 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 this muse I, I'm still incapable of describing because I think it's completely unique in your own of this like mixed media project of doo wop that you grew up listening to and the new wave that was coming out in the 70s and pushing it, pushing it, pushing it. And it, you yeah. know, it, it's, it's, an, it's exciting to hear it in, both on its own, but also as part of the larger story.
1: Well, you know, and, and also with this new album, there, there is an element of sort of referring back to something familiar. Um, you know, one of the the very interesting things about the last, you know, 10 years of touring with Fleetwood Mac, when you 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 come to terms with the fact that people are not particularly interested in hearing new stuff, that they want to hear the familiar stuff. And you come to terms with that and, and make peace with that. What makes that so palatable, or made it palatable for me at least, was that you know, maybe 10 years ago or maybe even more, you started seeing probably three generations of people coming to our shows. You could mm-hmm. find people who were young when when uh, we first joined the band, you could find their children and you could find their children's children, you know. And when you start realizing that your music is making sense across those generational lines, then you, you start to think, well, I guess we did something right, you know? And so in the, in the spirit of that, when I started making this new album, I, I really was interested in referring back to certain Fleetwood Mac things. And I really said to myself, I, I want to try to make a pop album more. So I want to think of it as that more so than I have in a long time or maybe ever. And so the songs, like you mentioned, like, you know, on the wrong side are are, you can draw a line between that and go your own way, certainly. And that's not an unconscious thing that I did. And I I thought it was appropriate at this point to kind of circle back. And yet, as you say, to do it, not literally the same, but with a new canvas, you know, and, and a new set of uh nuances and and a new perhaps a new set of values even you
2: know well there there also is a a example of actual time travel on the record where you cover uh a song by the pozo seco singers called time which fits into Mm -hmm. this theme i've thrown once again the
1: time theme (laughs)
2: um and you know i was i was enjoying the cover and rediscovering the original and, and noticing that that was a song that was released when i think you were about 17 years old which is which is prime time for rock music and, mm-hmm. you know, discovering things and hearing yourself on the radio. Um, I guess back when people listened to the radio. What does it mean for you to cover that song now? What was, did you have an evolving relationship with it over the intervening, intervening years? And why, why is it this is the time to cover a song about Well, I about don't time. know.
1: I, I, I think, you know, I've always put covers on my, my albums. Partially because I always want to touch base with something that was influential and that I loved when I was younger. And partially maybe to pay homage to certain influences. But in this case, you know, that song was actually recorded as a one-off. I'm going to say maybe even two years before I started working on the album proper. So it was just sitting on the shelf. And it wasn't necessarily something that occurred to me to put on initially. But as the album sort of took form, uh, it occurred to me that it might actually fit in quite well. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just, uh, I remember, I think one of the funny things about that song was that it didn't get a lot of play on on the stations that, that the kids were listening to. Uh, I remember my dad used to drive me. I I think it actually came out before I was 17, but I remember hearing it in the car with my dad as he was driving me to school and it was on his, what you would call the adult station. (laughs) (laughs) And it may have crossed over as well, but I mean, I remember being so taken with it the very first time I heard it and it's you know, obviously got a lot of play at the time. And so it stayed in my mind. And then when, when I thought about recording it, it was just, obviously I had to look up the old version and refer to it. And I actually tried to stay as close as I could to the old version, you know. But it's, again, it's, it's a piece of folk music. Folk was a huge part of my transitional influence after the first wave of rock and roll kind of fell away. And before the Beatles and and all that stuff came in, you know, folk music was really a defining thing for my playing with the finger picking. And um, I don't know, the Pozo Seco singers, I think, were pretty much a one hit group, but uh, just a beautiful song. And I was I was sort of honored to be able to bring it back, you know.
2: Speaking of moments in time, I, I have a right now hanging on my wall. And if I was more tech savvy, I would turn all of this and, and show you. <laughs> I, I, have, I have a photograph that Neil Preston took of the band in um, 1979. And oh, wow. I, I actually b- bought this photograph from him uh, in Hawaii. Uh, that sounds like a humble brag that I went to Hawaii, but I did. And, uh, and side story, um, went to Mix Restaurant on like a random oh, Thursday. Yeah. And of course, he's playing and not he's not just playing. He's living life on overload on a random Thursday to a bunch yeah. of tourists in Maui. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which was remarkable and helped me kind of change my thinking about what legacy acts are doing when they're touring. And it's not necessarily just about preserving their legacy. It's about doing right. something that they love. Um. Anyway, this image that I have that he took of you guys in 1979, it's the unveiling of your star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And
1: oh, yeah. I, I know that photo. Yeah. It's,
2: it's an amazing uh, photo to me because the band is at the center of the frame looking at this newly unveiled star and surrounding you is just what feels like there was an open casting call for 1970s oddness. There's just very, <laughs> there's, there's certainly there's hair and mustaches that speak to the era, but there's also newscasters and hangers on. And there's a guy in a dog costume. It seems like a total chaos. And okay. yet in the middle of this photo, you are uh, staring happily at the star. And when I look at this picture, it, it, it's, it seems to me, again, this might be the soap operatic reading of it from the outside, that you were very present in that moment and enjoying it uh, for what it was. And I, I wonder if that's a correct read on the situation and if there's any extrapolations to be made about how you were able to experience or enjoy that that time that you've described, you know, not to many people as, as, a, as a wild roller coaster.
1: Well, I don't, you know, I can't. Uh, claim to remember too <laughs> sure. much about that, but I, I, I would think that if anything, you know, on on one level, you, as with anything, any award you may get or any kind of citation of your, it, it's a formalization and to some degree it's always a little bit self-serving uh, from somebody else's point of view, but uh, I, you know, at the same time, you know, a star on, Holly, on the, the Walk of Fame was was something that you are aware of pretty much your whole life. You know, the people, the actors, a lot of actors who end up getting stars. So I, I think I was taken not only with the fact that we were getting, uh, you know, a nod from... Powers that be, but that in some ways it was slightly out of context it it was broad enough we what we'd accomplished had been broad enough to move outside the realm of strictly being about music you know and uh, that it was about the entertainment industry in general and and you know i I just you think about your growing up and your your parents and and just these moments that they would take in with pride and and so i think you're sort of prideful for for that 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 may have been what i was sort of thinking about in that moment
2: or you were saying what's this guy in the dog costume doing over my shoulder that may have yeah
1: been. well that too yeah <laughs> but you know that's part of the circus you know <laughs>
2: it was the 70s um I listened to you recently speak to Mark Marin at length. Um, the mm-hmm. great podcast interview. And 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 one of the things that, that struck me was when you spoke to him, you know, he he was he was probing on on familiar terrain about rumors right. and, and that experience. And the way you spoke about it was striking to me because you you talked about how it felt at the time almost like an inevitability, the sort of rolling of a turned into a career from you and Stevie working together to the record to being in the studio and Mick hearing it to all of a sudden well, I guess all of a sudden you're on Hollywood Boulevard getting a, getting a star. Yes. I, I wonder if when looking back, is there a moment in all of that or at the end of that era of the band that you think of as a turning point or an inflection point in terms of how you considered, uh, now, now, now I feel like a cliche since I already said this, but how you considered time. Like, was there a moment in there when it became more clear to you that, not just that time was finite, because everybody sort of understands that, but that with every decision you made, there was there were decisions not made. Specifically, we'll make Mirage now and go on tour, and that means that I won't be following up Law & Order right away, for example. Or, you know, with, with for everything that you do, there are things that you don't do.
1: No, I don't think so. Um, I, you know, everything kind of happened fast. Certainly in the early days, and that, I think that was part of my point to Mark Baron was that, you know, from the time Stevie and I moved to L.A. to the time we got a deal, to the time the album came out and didn't do so well, to the time we met Mick, to the time we made that first album, to the time we it, it turned out to sell multi-millions of copies, was really quite short. And everything at that point became sort of on automatic um and it you, you it was sort of washing over you obviously when rumors was done we we had no we knew it was going to be successful but no one could have predicted how successful it was going to be or that you know it would the success would at some point become about the success and not about the music um I don't really get a sense of time having imposed itself in terms of a feeling about it. The only thing I would say really is that, well, two things. When Mick came to me after Tusk, and believe me, they the band were so drawn into the process that we had going on Tusk by the time we got done, and it was only when it didn't sell 16 million copies that you know and it was still a huge seller it was just a double album that probably sold five you know and Mick came to me and said well we're not going to do that again that was a moment where time seemed to maybe shift away from the continuum and and i it had to be time seemed to fragment a little bit at that point you know because then i realized that i had to either just be in the band or i had to almost become schizophrenic, which is what I chose to do a little bit musically. Um, The other moment, which was sort of in slow motion, was during the making of Tango in the Night. And that was an album we did in its entirety up at my house in Bel Air at the time in my studio which had been the garage and it was also the time 1986 1987 when the rest of the band was really at their hit hit critical mass in terms of the lifestyle they were leading with alcohol and, and substances and because of that it was a very chaotic environment you know and because we only saw Stevie for like a few weeks out of a year, and because Mick was living in a trailer in my front yard, <laughs> um you know that the chaos of that and then contemplating taking that chaos out on the road to tour uh Tango in the night was not something that I felt comfortable doing and that and at that point, leaving the band became this pivot where all of a sudden time slowed down. And I was able to breathe again, and I was able to uh, have space around me and and to collect my creative uh, thoughts in in terms of putting them into some sense of forward motion, which ended up being out of the cradle. So, you know, there have been moments there. But uh,
2: I I was watching the video for Countdown yesterday, and you look very happy in it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. I
2: I um the question I have about the moment the present moment um you know as you said the the opportunity to just make the music alone in your studio is is you know it's something you've embraced and and one of the things that I love about your recording style especially on these last few records is the way you create a community out of your own voice um mm-hmm. with the with the backing vocals um you know and and the sense that this is a very pure vision I was wondering at this stage in your career, how important is a larger musical community to you? And I don't mean specifically being a member of a band, but, you know, being in constant touch with other musicians or peers or younger generation. Um, the, the other takeaway that I love from the Mark Marin conversation is, you know, there's a little crosstalk, I think, relating to something you had spoken to him about off the record, where he was saying something about a Largo show that, that Judd had invited you, sh- you to. And, and you said, yeah, I'll go. I'll do it. Or I, I would do that. And, the, and it was a, you know, it was a nice reminder that there's still uh, the idea that someone of your stature would just go down and kick around at a show at Largo is sort of inspiring and exciting. So I, I guess I wonder where you are with that at this
1: moment. Well, you know, I, I, I've always been somewhat of a loner in terms of how I allot my time. And I, I think having a lot of alone time and space gives you the the psychic space to be creative, especially if you're, sort of if your process is as self-sufficient as mine is, you know, so it it doesn't inherently have to be very collaborative. Having said that, I mean, it's always intriguing and there, um, there are always, uh, instances where your interaction with younger artists is something that you get satisfaction from, or it's, it's never a bad thing. I mean, there's always, uh, mutual respect and and a a sense of brotherhood or or whatever that you get from that but you know it's not something that I'm looking at to pursue in a broader sense you know a lot of people get to a certain point where your audience I mean my my audience for solo work has always been smaller anyway you know compared to Fleetwood Mac I mean if for if there's 10 people that listen to Fleetwood Mac, probably I get one of those who who to for whom the solo work makes sense, you know, because it's it's a different animal and it and it tends to sort of thwart the preconceptions they may have about me in Fleetwood Mac. But um you you do see a lot of artists who will pursue the idea of collaborative efforts as a visibility tool you know and i'm i mean i'm not opposed to that but at the same time i'm not someone who is out there looking for that in order to fulfill some sort of commercial outcome because it's just not something i've ever done i've always had the fleetwood mac as the big machine and and the solo work where where i continue to grow and and learn and and hopefully create in in a more pure sense. And and it's kind of like, and I think I said this to Mark in, in his podcast, you know, if you're a film director, you know, and you were making that choice, it would be like, you know, if you want to be Jim Jarmusch or somebody like that, you know, you're not going to think about the business you're doing and try to hold it up to a Spielberg movie. You know, you're, you're obviously going to reach a much smaller audience, but you're doing, what you want to do you're creating on your own terms and that's that's a trade-off you got to be willing to make you know
2: and i think it makes a lot more sense when when we do hear you elsewhere it 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 it's of a piece like the the solo you contributed to the killer's record last year which was just sure. so perfect and and couldn't have been done by anybody else um, yeah
1: and great guys too
2: i i think um one of the things that struck me in you know in in hearing some of the other interviews you've done in the press for the cycle is that it does seem like there is a sense of that you carry some sense of optimism about future collaborations with the band. Is that still something that you carry in your heart or is it just, if it happens, it happens.
1: Well, look, I, whatever went down with the band, you know, all of them, Stevie, everybody, I I don't hold any grudges. I, I know everyone is doing the best they can and it doesn't, I don't blame anyone for anything. If there were things that I did, to uh enable that or to create it in some way i I would want to own up to that, but having said that, you know i i don't i I didn't feel bad that I wasn't part of that tour they did. The only thing that concerned me and that I felt oh hi, the only thing that concerned me and that I felt a little bit disappointed by, or perhaps more than a little was that. Uh again, you go back to the legacy of Fleetwood Mac. And that legacy is about rising above difficulties and the fact that for 43 years we're still here. And, and especially after Christine came back, these five people are still working it out. And it may be not easy, but but their their eye is on the higher purpose. And I did not feel that. I I didn't see the show they did uh, without me, you know, with Neil Finn and and Mike Campbell. But I saw the set list and it was, you know, somewhat generic and it was somewhat, uh, I don't know. I mean, there was was Peter Green, there was Bob Welch, there was Crowded House, there was Tom Petty, you know, and I, I mean my initial sort of knee jerk to seeing that was, is this like a cover band now? And clearly it wasn't that per se, but but what I did feel was that it did not honor the legacy that we had built together. And so when you, when you, when I contemplate further work with Fleetwood Mac, as I say, I don't, I don't hold any grudges uh, per se. And, and I, I would go back like a shot if, if they all collectively ask me to come back now, Mick, I've had conversations with, and he would love to see that happen. I know Christine would love to see that happen, and I think they all know that that there's a more appropriate way to sort of finalize the Fleetwood Mac story and the tour they did a couple of years ago. Whether or not that ever happens is is a is a whole other question, you know because it's really more down to one person than and what that person wants to do, or is willing to do. And so uh, we'll just have to see, you know. They they know that I would come back like a shot. They know that I'm not really uh, uh, holding any animosity towards them in any way, and that that I'm sorry things ended up the way they did, and that it, it shouldn't have happened, but, you know, things happen, so we'll see.
2: I think if anything, if we've learned anything over the last few years, it's that things happen. Um, (laughs) I agree with that. And uh, worst case scenario, which isn't the worst case at all. Do you have a, do you have another solo album already sitting somewhere in the basement? I mean, is the work always ongoing?
1: You know, it was funny when the pandemic hit and because obviously this album, going back to trying to get those three months, you know, for, to put it out uh, before the Fleetwood Mac tour. And then, we were getting ready to put it out again you know in late 2018 early 2019 and then i had the bypass so that you know kicked it down the road and then we were getting ready i was actually you know auditioning drummers uh, when the pandemic hit <laughs> so you know it's it's three times that we've had to kick this thing down the road and and when the when the pandemic did hit for some reason, I just wasn't, we had just moved houses and I had a new studio that was just still being put together. And when it finally got all reassembled, I just didn't want to go down there right away. Finally, I did go down and I, I kind of finished mm, three songs. So I've got a few, I made a start on a new album, but nothing like a finished album, you know. I've well, got this a lot is- of work left to do
2: this one's worth the wait. Um, oh, I appreciate September it. 17th. Um, it's just, you know, it, it's such an honor to speak to you, but it's really, oh. uh, I I'm as old as rumors. I love Tusk, but <laughs> the fact that the work keeps going forward is, is really exciting and inspiring. And I just a- appreciate the chance to talk to you about it. Well,
1: I appreciate people like you who've got the ears and the heart for understanding and appreciating what I'm doing. Cause that's, that's who it's for, you know?
2: Well, thank you. And the only thing before I let you go, that your dogs made a cameo appearances. Should should we introduce yes, them is. for their? Several I don't know if this is the, if this is the, their debut on Mike, uh, but
1: well, this is George. He's,
2: he's <laughs> Hello, the George. Only one here
1: now. I think you saw uh, Jonesy briefly. He was the white lab, and then uh, uh, one other one came in. I'm not sure. I think it was uh, Billy. That's my daughter's dog. So I
2: love. It was creating a soundscape, which I think is appropriate yes. for a conversation. Uh-huh. So well, anyway. Such a pleasure to talk to you again. I look forward to seeing you out on the road, hopefully
1: soon. Great great seeing you again and talking to you. Thank you for having me.